long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with disasters, what happened, why it happened, and what we can learn from them. As an anxious person, learning about these whys helps me feel more in control of my own safety. As an empath, I just want to know and tell the human stories behind these disasters. Who survived, who didn't, and most importantly, how they lived. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I hate that disasters happen, but since they're gonna, I want to learn from them. Whether it's an act of God, act of man, or accident, I'll cover it all here. So I hope you'll buckle up real tight and come along for the ride with me. This is the Disaster Queen Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Disaster Queen Podcast. I'm your host, Jenny, the Disaster Queen. Thank you so much for joining me yet again for another disaster breakdown. I just have to say, I still have no chill. I'm loving doing this. I appreciate your support so much. Please help me out by rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen and inviting some friends to listen, perhaps. I'm so just honored and really excited to be able to do this with you. So thank you so much. All right, so let's get into today's disaster. Today I've chosen the eruption. Yes, another eruption. We started out episode one with an eruption. We're going for yet another volcano. This is the eruption of Fakari, also known as White Island, in New Zealand. And it occurred on December 9th, 2019. So I chose this one because I saw an amazing documentary on it last year on Netflix by Rory Kennedy. It's called Volcano, the Escape from Fakari. And Fakari is spelled with a W-H. So if I accidentally say Wakari, I'm very sorry but I will do my best to pronounce it appropriately. So that's a Maori word. So let's talk a little bit about the Maori people. The Maori people are indigenous East Polynesian people who came to New Zealand on canoe voyages, which is hard to imagine taking a canoe across the ocean, but it totally happened roughly from 1320 to 1350. So they were there before the white European settlers way before there's only 17% of New Zealand's total population. And like most native people of color, they were oppressed when the white European settlers arrived. And as a result of that systemic oppression, they suffer uh, from less economic success, less educational success, poor health outcomes, and disproportionately high rates of incarceration in comparison to their fellow New Zealanders who are white of European descent. So that's just kind of a background on the the land that Fakari comes from and the people that named it. Fakari is the Maori word and White Island is the English name. I'll mostly be referring to the volcano as Fakari. So let's talk about the land surrounding Fakari. It is, like I said, a volcano. The English name is White Island, so that might give you a clue that it is an island meaning it's a volcano in the ocean, and most of it is beneath the ocean. Only about one-third of the volcanic cone is above the water. It is, the closest town is called Fakatane, also spelled with a W-H. And Fakatane is about 45% Mori and 55% non-native, so it's a lot more Mori population than most of New Zealand, because like I said, Mori is only 17% of the total population. But according to the folks interviewed in the documentary called Volcano, the communities get along well and support each other, which is awesome. Um, Fakatani is located on the east coast of the North Island of New Zealand. So New Zealand is 
made up of two main islands, North Island and South Island. It's in the Bay of Plenty region, and there's about 16,000 people in the town, give or take a few. And the main industry is tourism, adventure tourism to be specific, which New Zealand is huge for adventure tourism. And Fakari was a huge, huge part of this for the town of Fakatane, which is where we'll talk about in a second. White Island Tours is based. Fakatane is a strata volcano, so it doesn't erupt with lava, but with rock, ash, and superheated steam and gases. And like I mentioned, it's in the Bay of Plenty region. It's in the northeastern region of the Bay of Plenty. The island is beautiful with all kinds of colors caused by sulfur and other volcanic gases. So instead of just being like gray or brown, like the top of a mountain might be, it's got yellows and greens and oranges and just all kinds of amazing looking colors. And it has bubbling mud pits and heated streams. So it's kind of like another world in the middle of the ocean. And that's, of course, a reason why it was super popular with tourists. So it had erupted, though, pretty recently. It was This story takes place in 2019. And Fakari is super, super active, way more active than, say, Mount St. Helens that we had talked about in the first episode. It had erupted most recently in 2016 and then 2013 and 2012. And at the time of this incident, it was on a level two warning, I guess. And level one is like, nothing's happening. Level two is like moderate activity. And level three is like, you better get off the island. So even though it was on a level two, they were still taking tours. And part of the reason for that was there was an exceptional safety record for White Island tours because they'd never had an incident. They'd taken tens and possibly hundreds of thousands of people visit the volcano each year, and they'd never had an incident. So that's part of the reason, I guess, they were still taking people out there. But it was basically responsible, I think the other reason is, for the town of Fakatani's tourism industry, and that was its main business. So Fakari really kept Fakatani in business. And maybe that's a reason that like a level two warning wasn't a big deal. I think they had also probably taken people to visit on a level two many, 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 many times. So let's get down to December 9th, 2019. As I mentioned, White Island Tours was the main tourism company. There are a couple others that we'll talk about. And they're the main company that we're going to talk about in relation to this eruption. They were actually owned by a Maori tribe called the Nagati Awa. And this Maori tribe used the profits from White Island Tours, which, like I said, was a very busy and successful tourism company, to fund social programs to uplift their people, which I think is pretty awesome. And as I mentioned, the Maori people had some, you know, struggles due to systemic racism, basically. And so it's really cool that they were able to own this tourism company and use their profits to uplift their people. That day, White Island Tours had three boats going out. One had gone out pretty early and is not a part of the story. Their other two were called the Phoenix and the Tapoya. On the Tapoya specifically were 38 passengers from the Ovation of the Seas cruise ship, which was a Royal Caribbean ship that had sailed from Australia. Not all of the people on the Tapoya were from the cruise ship, but almost all of them were. Just so you know. Uh, So that's a pretty big deal. That is why most of the people involved in this incident were Australian. 
which we'll talk about in a bit when we break down who this eruption affected. So two boats went out that day. The Phoenix was first, and then the Tapoya. It's a full 90-minute boat ride from Fakatani and White Island Tours out to the volcano, to Fakari. So in the, in the volcano documentary, people are talking about how the ride out was kind of rough and a lot of people were getting seasick. I mean, I think 90 minutes, like you really got to want to go see this thing if you're willing to endure a 90-minute ride there and back in the open ocean, in my opinion. I am, um, like I said, I'm fascinated with disasters, but I'm not particularly adventurous, perhaps because I'm a very anxious person, but I just can't see myself taking a 90-minute boat ride on the open ocean for any reason at all. But these people really, really wanted to see Fakari, so they did it. There were also, in addition to White Island tours and the boats, some helicopter tourist companies. So two that we'll talk about are called Volcanic Air and Kehu. And I don't know if it's Kehu or Kahu, it's K-A-H-U. Volcanic Air is the only company that had tourists on the island that day. Pilot Brian DePaw is interviewed in the documentary, and it was actually his first day to be able to fly passengers solo. So can you imagine? Not his first day on the job, but his first day that he's allowed to go solo. And he had four passengers with him. They were German tourists. So... On the island, we have people from Phoenix, we have people from Tapoya, and we have people from Brian DePaul's helicopter with volcanic air. Phoenix was first, and so they uh, trekked up to the big crater lake on the volcano. It's just a gorgeous lake in the crater full of, like, had acidic colored water, like beautiful, gorgeous colored water with steam coming up, huge um, opportunity for photo ops. And so they made their way there, took their tour around the island and went back. So it's about a 90 minute trek there and back to the crater. And then they got back on their little rubber boats at the jetty and took their rubber boats out to where the Phoenix was anchored and got back on the Phoenix and took off. Those from the Tapoya were behind the Phoenix, so they were still on the island And they were split into two groups, and there were two tour guides in each group. So the first group was with tour guides Kelsey Waghorn and Jake Milbank. It was Jake's 19th birthday. There's so many, like, momentous things on this day. Milbank's 19th birthday. It was Brian DePaz's first day to be able to fly people solo. And then the other tour guide, Hayden Marshall Inman, with the second group from Phoenix, I mean, from Tapoya. It was his 1,111th visit, he had noted in his log that, that day. So I just feel like there, the stars were aligned for something to happen on this day. The final tour guide who was with Hayden was Tiffany Mongi. He was a Maori guy, young guy, and it was pretty new on the job, still training. And so he was with Hayden, who was the most experienced guide. He'd been with the company for 10 years. And Hayden had actually been promoted to skipper. So he would be skippering a boat usually, but he was functioning as a guide on this day to accommodate the group from the cruise ship. So they'd added a tour just for these folks from the cruise ship. So we've got two groups from the Tapoya still on the island. The Phoenix group has taken off. Also still on the island are Brian DePaul and his four passengers. All in all, there's 47 people on the island when at 2.11 p.m. the volcano suddenly erupts. It was a phreatic eruption of steam and ash that we talked about, those kind of eruptions with Mount St. Helens with episode one. 
The first tour group with Kelsey and Jake, they were already headed toward the jetty. They were all done with their tour. So they're headed toward the jetty to get on those rubber boats and get back to the Tapoya, but they were not close enough. So when the eruption started happening, Kelsey knew immediately what was happening and yelled at everyone to run. They all took off. They were able to take shelter behind a huge outcropping of rocks, but they were still hit very hard with the superheated ash cloud and they had to endure it for as long as it lasted, which was about two to three minutes. Unfortunately, the second group with Hayden and Tiffany were still basically at the crater. They had just started walking away from the crater and the crater with the acidic lake and everything is unfortunately where the eruption came from. So these poor people had no chance to take shelter anywhere. It's awful. Like Kelsey's group, Brian DePaul and his passengers were pretty much done with their tour and they were headed back to Brian's helicopter, which was on a small helicopter pad. And Brian saw what was happening and yelled at his passengers to run and jump in the water. So he and um, two of his passengers did make it into the water and two did not. Brian and his passengers that made it into the water were mostly unhurt. What the, the woman with him uh, just had burns on her arm. Brian and the other passenger were totally unhurt, but they had to stay underwater for quite a long time. Brian describes just it being totally black and he was trying to hold his breath and not come up until he could see some light, which is very harrowing, guys. I'm not a strong swimmer. Swimmer would not have made it <laughs> for sure. Um, going back to the people at the crater, I wanted to read you this quote. There's a really fabulous article from Outside Magazine that I've got linked in the show notes that I encourage you all to read. It's an amazing piece of journalism. There's a quote from Andy McGregor, who was the police district commander for the Bay of Plenty, and he's talking about what the people at the crater would have suffered. And his quote is this, in the ash was hydrochloride, hydrofluoride, and sulfur dioxide. Mix those with water and you get hydrochloric acid, hydrofluoric acid, which attacks calcium, and sulfuric acid. So you've got superheated gases, you've got the blast, and you've got the acid atmosphere. Imagine what that does. End quote. I cannot imagine. I don't want to imagine. I mean, I kind of can, but it's really otherworldly to think about. Like, and as I mentioned, the safety record was stellar for White Island Tours. And it just is pretty imaginable and an infinitesimal chance that this would happen while they were 47 people on the island and a group so very close to the crater. It's just really terrible. So let's start to talk a little bit about what happened after aftermath. Like I said, the eruption lasted two to three minutes. The blast cloud went up over two miles into the sky and passengers on the Phoenix were headed away from the island, but they were still pretty close. And of course they saw the eruption. They were starstruck by how beautiful it was. And of course they all started taking videos with their camera and pictures, but they soon became terrified because the ash cloud started surging toward them and the crew yelled for them to get inside. There was a small enclosed portion of the boat. And so everyone ran inside the enclosed portion and they sped away from the island as fast as they could. But the Phoenix crew is a bunch of heroes. <laughs> and as soon as they saw the ash cloud calm down about 10 minutes, they started speeding back toward the island as fast as they could because they knew that the Tapoya, all the Tapoyas, passengers, and tour guides were still on the island. The Tapoya boat crew was still on the Tapoya, so they were anchored a little bit further out, but still 
in harm's way, but they were able to get inside the boat and they were okay. So the Tapoya skipper, Paul Kingy, also got in his uh, little rubber boat and rode over to the island as quickly as he could. So while the Phoenix was helping, um, they got back to the to the place where they could anchor. The crew got on a little rubber boat and raced to the island, and all of Kelsey's group had pretty much gathered at the jetty. So Kelsey and Jake and all their, you know, folks on their tour were all wounded, all burnt horribly. And the witnesses on the Phoenix just recall just everyone being completely gray and covered in ash. So they looked like they had been painted gray sitting there on the jetty waiting for help. Um, they got as many people into the rubber boats, you know, as they could. They went back and got more. So they were able to get Kelsey's entire group onto the Phoenix. <clears throat> and then two of the passengers that are interviewed in the various documentaries that I watched are Jeff and Lilani Hopkins. They're a father-daughter. They were on the Phoenix, and they were both trained in trained in first aid, and they jumped to help the crew of the Phoenix care, but all they could really do was pour water on the burns. So as I mentioned, it's a 90-minute boat ride to get back to the mainland. So these poor people who were horribly burned, you know, basically most people 60 to 80% of their bodies had to endure a boat ride, a 90-minute boat ride back to shore with the sun, the wind, the salt water. Just, I just can't imagine how horrible it must have been. Jeff and the Lonnie Hopkins talk about trying to keep people warm once they started going into shock, how pouring water on their burns was so painful because they had no skin left. So they would put clothes over them to act as skin and then pour water on the clothes. Just holding hands, trying to talk to them, trying to keep them conscious, trying to keep them alive. It's very harrowing, but also like, like we need to acknowledge it and get into it because it honors these people's stories, what they went through. And it honors these hero citizen rescuers who rose to the occasion. So highly recommend both the documentary Volcano and one that I will link to in the show notes. That was an episode of Real Stories. I also watched, I think it was an Australian 60 Minutes that just shares some of these stories and it's really, really valuable. So I hope you'll all take time not just to listen to this, but to maybe watch some of these stories as well. Okay, let me backtrack just a little bit. I mentioned that as the Phoenix was getting people off the jetty from Kelsey's group, the skipper of the Tapoya was also headed back to the jetty to help. And he was shocked to see a very badly burned tourist from the crater group stumbling toward him. And his name was Jesse Langford. He was 19 years old. He was burned over 90% of his body. He was the only person left that Kingy could see. So he grabbed him and put him in his little rubber boat, took him to the Tapoya and the Tapoya raced off with Langford. Another skipper actually took Jesse Langford and Kingy went, got on the rubber boat and went back to the island to search. So another hero, Kingy, did not, he didn't know if it was going to erupt again, but he sent his boat off, his only transportation back, and he got back in the little rubber boat and went back to see if he could help more survivors. So it's just, these stories are amazing. These guys really went above and beyond. 
So Kingi is back on the island searching for more survivors from the crater group. The Phoenix is speeding toward land, has a very long ride. At some point, a Coast Guard boat with two paramedics reached the Phoenix, and the paramedics came aboard the Phoenix and started helping the injured aboard. But really, there wasn't a whole lot they could do. So it's so hard. And again, such a long boat ride back. And of course, the Coast Guard had been alerted because everyone can see Fakari from the mainland. Like the eruption was not hard to see. And they and White Island, of course, knew they had tourists out there. So all the authorities were alerted. And help was on the way. But then help was also not on the way, which is what we'll get into in a second. And it's super not great. So let's keep talking about some civilian heroes, which is great. <laughs> so I mentioned there were two helicopter companies, Volcanic Air and Kehu. Brian DePaul was on the island with Volcanic Air. And these helicopter agencies, of course, also saw that there was an eruption. It's only a 20-minute helicopter ride as opposed to a 90-minute boat ride, which is why some people, you know, would prefer that method. Um, they immediately started calling each other. Both companies started calling each other and saying, we've got to get out there. The, you know, Volcanic knew they had one of their guys out there. And so eventually two groups from... The different agencies made their way out there, and they, the pilots and crew were Jason Hill, Tom Story, Mark Law, Tim Barrow, and Graham Hopcroft. They took off less than an hour after the eruption and headed to Fakari. And then in addition, they received a call from a small plane pilot named John Fennell, and he said, I'm going to circle above to provide overhead radio cover for you guys. Because when they were going to be at the crater, they would only be able to hear shortwave radio, would not be able to communicate with the mainland at all. But they could communicate with John if he was circling above. So John Fennell was juggling his VHF radio and a cell phone and trying to relay messages between the police and the Coast Guard and these heroic helicopter pilots who were at the crater. The helicopters actually touched down about 3.12 p.m., which was only one hour and one minute after the eruption, which is amazing. And the crew was greeted with shin-deep ash that they had to wade through to get to the people that they had been able to spot from the air near the crater. Mark Law said that the people's wounds were gruesome. This was in the Outside Magazine article. He said, quote, they were black. Most of them were still alive. There were about 20 of them. But some were already unresponsive or dead. The helicopter pilots wanted to make it really, really clear that they had observed heroic behavior from tour guides Hayden Marshall Enman and Tiffany Mongi. And so here's another kind of longer quote from the Outside Magazine article that I wanted to read because I, I want to make it clear, too, that these guys really went above and beyond. Here's the quote. Amid the carnage were signs of courage and sacrifice. A guide's medical kit sitting among the group was probably carried there by Hayden or Mongi after the blast. Many of the injured were wearing gas masks that looked to have been placed on them after they'd lost consciousness. In Mongi's outstretched hand was an asthma inhaler, as though he was passing it to someone when he succumbed. The footprints described almost unbelievable heroism. Atop the ash, they had to have been made after the eruption, and seemed to indicate that Hayden had backtracked and tried to lead his group away from the crater, toward the ocean. The position of his body, Mongi's and Winona Langford's, suggested that, in the darkness of the ash cloud, they were following the stream downhill. None of them made it, 
but Winona's elder brother Jesse had run all the way to the jetty. Whew. So these guys were, they were badly, you know, badly burned, but even in their torment, like their first duty was to try to save their people. And I just think it's really, really important to know that they did that. Um, I mentioned Winona. So that is Jesse Langford, who the Tapoya skipper picked up. That's her younger, his younger sister. She was 17 at the time. And we'll talk more about their family in a bit. So as I mentioned, the civilian helicopter pilots were on the ground and they were really just there kind of triaging people until they were able to get help from official rescuers. They knew that official rescue helicopters, which were mobile emergency rooms, were on their way from Auckland, which would be about an hour flight. And so they were like, we're going to like make these people comfortable and do whatever we can until the real medical professionals get here. But unfortunately, the real medical professionals were told after they had taken off not to go to Fakari because it was too dangerous and they were afraid it was going to erupt again, but to go instead to the Fakatani airport and receive their wounded there. Now, I do not want to blame the rescue helicopter crews. They were shocked and disappointed, obviously, that this was their assignment. They were wondering how the victims were going to even get to Fakatani if they weren't allowed to go get them. That's a great question, guys. So obviously this decision was later highly criticized and it no doubt cost lives, no doubt. The news was radioed to the civilian helicopter pilots by John Fennell and that was around 325 to 330 when they got the news that help was not on the way and they were none too pleased about it, of course, but they also just didn't sit around and be like, ooh, what do we do now? They got, they sprung into action. They kept acting. And Mark Law made the decision that they themselves were going to act as the rescuers and they were going to take as many living victims out as they could. So, like I said, there were about 20 people left. They got 12 of them out on their helicopters and they left eight deceased on the island. And that was really hard for them. And sadly, 10 of the 12 that they got out later died. But those two people who survived would not have survived if Mark Law and his fellow helicopter pilots had not taken that responsibility on. And like they were loading them up in tourism helicopters. It's not like these were the mobile ERs or anything. So they are serious heroes. And Mark Law has a kind of a scathing quote in the Outside Magazine article about what happened with the rescue crews not arriving. And he said, quote, the reality of the situation that day is it was all about volunteers taking care of the needs of many while emergency services reacted to the needs of compliance and personal safety. He says the authorities were, quote, on a completely different page than us. The truth hurts. I mean, he's not wrong. And there's two people that are alive today that wouldn't be alive if Mark Law and his colleagues had not acted the way they did. So, and, you know, like I said, it's very possible that a few of those others that died would have survived if the mobile ERs had landed, but they were ordered to land at the Fakatani airport. So they followed their orders, but there's been tons and tons and tons and tons of criticism of that. Obviously it's easy to Monday morning quarterback, but even like, it just seems really bad that that's what they did, but that's what happened. 
All right, so we've got the Phoenix speeding back. And the Tapoya with Jesse Langford speeding back. So obviously there were huge amounts of first responders waiting at Fakatani at the dock when they arrived. And so that was good. <laughs> they were all there and they triaged the patients as best as they could. And they got them into ambulances and they were taken to the Fakatani hospital or the airport from there where these ER, mobile ERs were able to get them to other hospitals. Because Fakatani, like I said, is about 16,000 people. They've got a hospital, but like you've got, there were 47 people left on the island. So there's eight dead that were there. So that's the approximately 39 people left that have serious burns. I think I mentioned three of them escaped pretty unharmed. So about 35, 36 people with serious burns. That's a ton for a, a hospital of that size. So they were transferred, many of them to other hospitals. And then, you know, the healing began. So let's talk about the families who were affected. The thing about this disaster is that a ton of the people on the island, 38 out of 47, when it erupted, were from a cruise ship. So who do you go on a cruise ship with? Your family, right? So this disaster disproportionately affected families, and that just compounds the tragedy of it. So we're going to talk about those who died and those who survived in the different ways that this impacted families. We're going to start and content warning. I'm terrible with content warnings. I keep meaning to do a content warning at the beginning. Keep forgetting. I assume if you're listening to a disaster podcast, you know that there's going to be death involved. So content warning. Now we're going to talk about the deceased. I, I do not get graphic. That's not me. Don't want to do that. Um, there are the deaths of teenage children discussed. Okay. So listen with care, or if you can't listen, then skip forward a couple minutes. All right, we're going to start with the Hollander family. The Hollander family was actually an Australian-American family. Mom, Barbara, was American. Uh, Dad, Martin, was Australian. They had lived in the U.S. for a while, but now they were living in Australia, and they were on the cruise together with their sons, Berend, who was 16, and Matthew, who was 13, and all four members of the Hollander family perished near the crater. The next family affected was Gavin Dallow, who was 53 years old, and his wife, Lisa, and Lisa's daughter, Zoe Hosking, who was 15. She's Gavin's stepdaughter. They were on the cruise together. They were at the crater together. And Gavin and Dal uh, Gavin Dallow and Zoe Hosking passed away. Zoe was alive when they got her in a helicopter, when Mark Law and his colleagues got her in a helicopter, but she did not make it to the mainland before she passed away. And so one of the documentaries I watched, oh, Gavin's family is talking and it's just, it's terrible. Like it's the grief. I mean, to lose, and for Lisa to lose her husband and her only child. I mean, it's, it's awful. The next family we'll talk about is the Langfords. I already mentioned the children, Jesse, who was 19, and Winona, who was 17, they were on the cruise with their mom and dad, Christine and Anthony. They're from Australia and they were big adventure people. Jesse talks in the volcano doc on Netflix about how he and his sister loved to do anything that was like adrenaline junkie type stuff. And so they had gone on this adventure together and Jesse somehow miraculously made it. He's the only person from the crater that walked out of the crater and in his case ran. He's the only one who was able to make it to the shore to get help out of 20 people, 21 people. So 
he was burned over 90% of his body, but he survived, but he lost his entire family. His story is so inspiring. I really encourage you to watch the volcano doc and take it in. And he also says that his grandfather is his rock. <clears throat> Excuse me. Getting a little emotional. And um, he he's an athlete you, you, that you see him like boxing and training and just trying to, you know, get stronger and recover from his injuries. They told him he'd be in the hospital for months and months or up to a year. And he was in the hospital for two months. Like he's a machine. Amazing, inspiring story. And I, you know, I know he'll go on to do great things, but I feel like so sad for his trauma because he lost his whole he was with his whole family when they died it's awful and it gets more awful so here we go we'll talk about the browett family the browett family was dad paul and daughters stephanie and crystal and their mom they were all on the cruise together but mom stayed back and was still on the cruise ship they were on this cruise to celebrate daughter crystal's 21st birthday crystal and Stephanie and Paul were all at the crater. They were all horrifically burned. Crystal died on the island. Her dad, Paul, died a few weeks later in the hospital. And sister Stephanie was badly burned, but it's an, also a very inspiring survival story. And you can watch her story on one of the episodes I saw on YouTube, which I will link to in the show notes. Truly another really inspiring story. She and her mom still have each other. But again, they lost half of their family. Next, we've got Julie and Jessica Richards. They were a mother and daughter, ages 47 and 20, and they were Australian and loved the outdoors and its adventures, and they died together pursuing those dreams on Fakari at the crater. And we've got an American couple, actually an Indian-American couple, um, Mayuri, who went by Mary, and Praytap, who went by Paul Singh. They had three children who stayed back on the cruise ship, thankfully. They uh, were from Atlanta, and they did um, initially survive, but both died later in the hospital, leaving their three children orphans. And they are one of the few American tourists involved in this. And they have family in India, as well as the United States, mourning their losses. So some others who passed were three friends that were on the cruise together, Carla Matthews, Richard Elzer, and Christopher Kozad. And, of course, um, the tour guides, Tiffany Mongi and Hayden Marshall Inman. And two other tourists, Horst Westenfelder and Jason Griffiths. I, I mentioned early about, earlier about Hayden and Tiffany's heroism. And I wanted to add this in here. A very sad postscript is... When the helicopter pilots left, they left eight deceased people on the island. Two of those were Hayden Marshall Enman and Winona Langford. The recovery crews did not come to claim the bodies of the deceased for four days. Again, I guess they were concerned that the island might erupt again, which is valid. But by the time they got there, a big storm had come through and an ash mudslide, and it had washed Hayden Marshall Inman's and Winona Langford's bodies out to sea. And they only were able to recover six bodies, so Hayden and Winona's remaining family have never been able to bury their loved ones, which I totally hate. And in both docs I watched, the Hayden's brother, Mark Inman, speaks to this and it's very touching um he just was a pretty 
great guy, apparently. All the helicopter pilots knew him and were looking for him when they got there. So I think he had a really great reputation in their community. And his mother had this quote in the Outside Magazine article about Hayden because he was never recovered. And she said, quote, wherever he is, either on Fakari or not, that's where he should be. He was the last man off that island. He will be the last man home. I just thought that was super touching. God bless those families. Um, I do want to mention some of the survivor stories like I said that I would. And I've kind of touched on them a couple. Jesse Langford, definitely check his out in the Volcano Dock. Kelsey Waghorn is also featured in the Volcano Dock. She was one of the tour guides who has burned over about 80% of her body and her recovery story and positive attitude are also super, super inspiring as well as is her honoring of her coworkers who did not survive that day. Jake Milbank, who's his 19th birthday that day was burned over 60% of his body and survives. And Stephanie Browett, who I mentioned, who lost her dad and sister is a super inspiring recovery story. And another one that was featured heavily in the documentary was a couple of Americans, Matt and Lauren Yuri, who were, wait for it, on their honeymoon, you guys. On their honeymoon. Like, I cannot. They went on this Australian cruise on their honeymoon. My honeymoon was the best week of my life. It was so relaxing and wonderful. It was a million years ago. We went to Punta Cana, Dominican Republic, and it was amazing. I cannot imagine getting married and then like 10 days later almost dying together like till death do us part becoming a super super real it's very like epic like i said there was just a lot of things about this disaster they were on their honeymoon it was jake's birthday it was hayden's 1111th trip it was brian depa's first day to be able to fly solo and i don't know it's just kind of a a disaster with lots of layers of craziness. The Yuri story is one of those layers. They are absolutely a precious couple. In the Volcano Doc, they're interviewed extensively. Um, Lauren talks about how she was really scared it was going to erupt in general. And Matt was like, Lauren, it's not going to erupt. It's going to be fine. Like, as an anxious person, I can really relate to Lauren. And my husband is exactly that way. He's like the cool, the cucumber guy, always keeping me calm and rational. And like, what are the odds that Matt was wrong? You know, they um, held on to each other as they were enduring the eruption. And Lauren said she was just screaming, I love you. I love you. I love you over and over again. Like (sighs) Jeff Hopkins and his daughter, Lilani, who were on the Phoenix. um, Jeff talks about how he was helping Lauren. He was holding her hand. She was just begging to die because she was in so much pain. And he was telling her you're not going to die today. You have more, you know, you have more life to live. You're not going to die on your honeymoon. And then just to see them interviewed at their home and going about their daily lives and their, their burns and scars are extremely obvious. I mean, on their faces, on their arms, on their hands, Matt said in the doc that they still have about one surgery a month between them and they've endured tons and tons of surgeries and therapies and just but their love for each other just really shines through and it's very touching so I mean what a way to start off your marriage I feel like if you can get through that and the this the pain and suffering of the recovery like do you marry someone that you can suffer with because like life gets hard and stuff gets real well you're probably gonna make it I think it looks like so far they both made a really good choice in spouses but encourage you to check out that story. Again, I hope you'll watch all these docs in the show notes and read this article from Outside Magazine. They're so good. 
Okay, well, let's wind it down. We're getting to the end of this terrible disaster. Overall, 22 people were killed. So 22 of the 47 who were left on the island when it erupted were killed. And almost all of those 47 were injured, save Brian DePaul and his passengers. So what did we learn from this? I mean, I'm not really sure. Read all the materials, watched the documentaries. I think what we've, the big thing we've learned is to take geological warnings more seriously. Like, maybe make level one the only level that you allow adventure tourism on an active volcano. I mean, I'm not sure. Like, to this day, Fakari is closed to foot traffic. I don't know how White Island tours in the town of Fakatani are surviving without that revenue. But, you know, the volcano was very active. It was erupting... 2012, 2013, 2016. I mean, you could not have paid me to go on that tour. So they were definitely sold. The tourists were definitely sold the idea that this was safe. And their safety record, like I said, was excellent. Very hard to argue with. All the eruptions that had occurred recently were at night or when there was no one on the island. And, you know, it was hard to argue with them when they said it was safe. But New Zealand has a big program called WorkSafe, where they can really, you know, put the screws to you if you have an unsafe and working environment for your employees. And so lots of charges have been filed surrounding Fakari's 2019 eruption by New Zealand's WorkSafe program, including charges against the people that own Fakari. Yeah, that you can own a volcano, apparently. So Fakari is actually owned by people. I don't get that. But so charges filed against those charges filed against the Nagati Awa tribe that owns White Island Tours, charges filed against the helicopter tour companies, and charges even filed against New Zealand's version of FEMA. All of those are still pending to this day and are set to be heard starting very soon, or even perhaps as you're listening to this in July 2023. And then several passengers have filed suit against Royal Caribbean because Royal Caribbean Cruises, who ran the Ovation of the Seas cruise, also, you know, they had a brochure about the excursion and, you know, it was seemed super safe and really didn't, you know, include super specific information about the risks faced. And Matt says, Matt Urey says in the Volcano Doc that like, you know, I'm fine with taking a risk, but give me the information to make a, a good choice. Like it wasn't. I want to make a calculated risk. I want to have information. He says, this was just sold to me as safe. And I never would have done it had I known about the level two or, you know, about the actual activity that had been recently going on on Fakari. So I think he makes a valid point. Who knows how these lawsuits will play out? Probably a settlement is my guess, but who knows? So like I said, the volcano is no longer open to foot traffic. You can see it by air. You can boat out to it, but you can't get on it. You can't go on it. You're not allowed. So I don't know. I'm going to keep my eye on the litigation and see what happens. I'll be really interested to see if they ever open it again. I want to know how Fakatani is surviving without this revenue. Like what other adventure tourism do they offer? It's very tragic. Interesting. Has tons and tons of repercussions, but... Yeah, that's the story of the Fakari White Island eruption of December 9th, 2019, that killed 22 people 
and very badly injured a couple of dozen more. So thank you for listening. I once again encourage you guys to check out some of the source materials and honor these people's stories. Their lives were precious. Their families were precious. And I know they'll live on through their surviving family members, but they should still be here. And it sucks that they're not. So I hope you can honor their stories with me. And thank you so much for listening. Seriously, have no chill, you guys. I love love doing this. And it means so much that you're in it with me. Special thanks to my disaster pod squad, my husband and my son and my family for supporting me. And I hope you guys will rate and review, tell a friend, spread the disaster dream and come visit me on Twitter and Instagram. And I'll see you in two weeks. Don't be a disaster. The Disaster Queen podcast is written, researched, and produced by me, Jenny Rapson, the Disaster Queen. Original theme music and sound engineering by Robert Rapson. Editing is by Josh Rapson. You can get him for your editing needs at joshrapson.edits at gmail.com. Original podcast artwork is by Ken Clark. And disasterqueen.com website design is by Hello Chicky Design. Check her link in the show notes for all your site design needs. All show notes can be found at disasterqueen.com. Got an episode suggestion? Email me at disasterqueenpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow at disasterqueenpod on Instagram and at disasterqpod on Twitter.